Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. The end of this very long, very unusual election season is almost here. And we talk to Charlottesville tomorrow about the future of the 5th District and what they've learned from election 2020 so far. Plus, Nathan Moore interviews hometown congressional candidate Dr. Cameron Webb about what he's seen as a doctor treating COVID patients and what he plans to do if he's elected on Tuesday. Thanks so much for taking time out of what I'm sure is a very busy pre-election day Friday to talk to us. How are you doing, Charlotte? Um, yeah, good. It is what it is. It's 2020 and it's a huge election year. Like you said, huge election year, big presidential election year. But let's start by focusing on the 5th district race and also the constitutional amendment that could radically change that district. Um, Most people listening to this podcast probably live in Virginia's 5th congressional district. Can you remind us about what makes the 5th district so unique? So the 5th congressional district is basically the size of New Jersey. The 5th district, it starts at the North Carolina border. It's a wider part of the district down there, and it gets a bit more narrow as it goes further north, but it basically goes almost all the way to Maryland um, up in Fauquier County. I've heard you call it a dragon rising out of North Carolina before. (laughs) Yeah, um, it definitely looks like a dragon. I've said that current Congress, outgoing congressman says that as well. Yeah, and then it's got a solid mix of like urban and rural areas, different industries and economies. And then also just different political leanings. So it's, I think, one of the more interesting districts to live in and report in. And also, I think 538 recently labeled the 5th as, I think, one of the most, if not the most toss-up district, congressional district in the country. So that was pretty cool to be like, oh, I'm actually covering this. How exciting. It's looking like Dr. Cameron Webb might win in the 5th district this year. Like you said, it's a toss-up, but even that's a big deal. And that would make him the first Democrat to win the 5th District since 2008. Why has this district gotten so competitive this year? Part of it, I would say, is a bit of trickle down from the presidential election. You've got one candidate talking about building consensus and doing his best to reach out to the entire district and reach out to people he knows may not vote for him. And then you've got another candidate who's very staunchly falling under the Trump umbrella, the the Trump rhetoric, the Trump policies saying that he'll be supporting everything Trump wants to do from a seat in Congress. So you've got two very different types of candidates at the same time. The Republican Party itself is kind of going through like a bit of an identity crisis within this part of the state because incumbent Denver Eagleman was ousted over the summer in a drive through convention, which obviously is not as many people voting as a state or not statewide, but district-wide primary. You know, when you have someone like Riggleman who occasionally voted with the Dems and you've got the Republican Party in some ways saying, well, that's not good enough. So kicking him out, putting in uh, Bob Good as their nominee. And then you've got, obviously, um, Cameron Webb, who could potentially be the first Dem to hold this seat in a while. And he's also a Dem who's making sure that he still touches base with the GOP um, constituents. What have been some of the major issues in this campaign? Obviously, healthcare emerged as a huge one. It always is a huge one, um, and particularly because of the pandemic this year, I feel like it catapulted that topic 
right back to like top of the list for so many people between Bob Good and Cameron Webb. They both have some similar ideas in terms of like supporting, you know, an open market healthcare system. And then I guess their difference is that Cameron Webb also wants to leverage some of, you know, what um, having a public option would be as well. So there's that. And then, um, you know, police reform, law enforcement um, also emerged over the summer. I mean, it's it's been state level, national level, local conversations for years and years and years. But over the summer, there was just such momentum and community organizing happening everywhere. So on one hand, you've got um, Bob Good running ads claiming that Cameron Webb wants to defund the police, which we also explored locally here over the summer. Defund is a nebulous term. It means a little bit something different to whoever you ask, but it has a lot of common goals in mind. Um, Meanwhile, Cameron Webb says he doesn't support defunding the police. He supports better funding the police to retain quality officers um, and support better training. So those, I think, healthcare and police reform are, are two huge national topics. They're happening in the presidential races, and they're also happening in the 5th District. All right. So let's switch gears and talk about the constitutional amendment on gerrymandering. Um, For all the details of that constitutional amendment, you can flip back to our episode from October 2nd. Um, But briefly, could you remind everybody what's in this proposed constitutional amendment? So the first proposed constitutional amendment on the ballots this year could potentially restructure how our um, state and congressional maps are drawn. Um, It's been a long time in the making. It's finally rallied together some bipartisan support. It passed the House of of Delegates two years in a row to end up as a referendum on our ballots. And it would basically, if it passes, it will create a redistricting commission composed of eight legislators and eight non-legislators that would be responsible for drawing maps that the hope is that they're less partisan, more fair, and there would be less chance of gerrymandering. However, some Democrats have changed their mind on this and are urging people to vote no on it because they say it's not good enough. Legislators shouldn't be on it in the first place. Um, Trust us to draw the maps next year and we'll try again on getting a better commission to draw the maps the next decade. So that's basically what it comes down to asking yourself, do you want to roll the dice and see how this commission works out? Or do you want to roll the dice and see how the next one could work out 10 years from now? It was really fun to learn a lot about and just do my best to provide a good resource for everyone to understand before they make their choice. And in addition to listening to that October 2nd episode, you can also go on Charlottesville tomorrow and check it out in the voter guide section. Um, Have you heard any predictions about what the outcome of this referendum vote might be? I have my sources that I want to reach out to today and top of next week and certainly throughout next week, um, because let's face it, we're not going to have any clear cut anything on election night this year, just due to the nature of how elections are going this year. Anecdotally, I can say that I've seen more vote yes signs around, but that's mostly just because the campaign that launched urging people to vote yes, it was better funded and had more time to get off the ground, whereas the opposition campaign telling us to vote no, it got started later this summer. So, you know, and anecdotes aren't aren't the best. They're, you know, it's qualitative, not quantitative. So I don't have any clear answer on that. I don't think anyone will until it passes or doesn't. Um, So talking about the presidential race, I feel like I'm hearing references to Charlottesville, like quote unquote Charlottesville all the time. And you recently published an article titled More Than a Hashtag, What Biden and Harris Could Learn from Hashtag Charlottesville Since Unite the Right, 
What inspired you to do this reporting? I feel like a lot of everyone in this area, the moment that Biden launched his campaign and he invoked Charlottesville, April 2019, we all knew that like at some point we may have to write about this. But um, I just kind of let it percolate and didn't realize, didn't know if I needed to write anything or not. Just he never came here during his campaign. And then it just kept coming up in in debates and not just by him. Um, Harris mentioned it during the vice presidential debate. Then her husband came to town and he referenced what happened here during a stump speech in support of Cameron Webb and obviously the Biden-Harris ticket. And I know that it's something that in a, in, a, in, a, in a city like this that went through what it went through, it can be a little bit jarring when you hear a presidential candidate use it and not be sure, like, was he really inspired by what happened here? Or is it kind of like a talking point, you know? So it, it just kind of, it got me thinking and my editor and I were thinking, okay, well, it's time to start checking in with people. So over the last few weeks, I've just been reaching out to organizers, activists, um, elected officials, just to learn like, okay, how do you feel about this being evoked? Um, do you wish that he had come? Do you still want him to come? Do you think he should never come? But more importantly, I wanted to focus on policy because at the end of the day, if these, you know, if Biden and Harris become our president and vice president, they say that Charlottesville still resonates with them. But what has happened in Charlottesville and Virginia as a whole since that they could learn from? So it was actually really fun to just kind of poke around and start asking questions. So um, when I was speaking with Jillian Schmidt, who is one of the co-leaders of these really wonderful walking tours of Court Square, I got to go on one once and it was really insightful. She was talking about just like the, the history of Charlottesville and how that relates to the history of our nation and obviously how that was a potentially contributing factor to the myriad of reasons why you know, white supremacists and Nazis came to town a couple summers ago. Um, but she was talking about how, like, here we are in Charlottesville, we're being somewhat of a national leader on face, quote, facing up to our past, as she was saying, you know, the 2016 Blue Ribbon Commission, the council votes, the court cases that are tied up right now, still just figuring out, well, are these statues best representing what we want to represent? Do they belong in public spaces? Should they go somewhere else? And kind of like sparked these debates that are happening. And obviously it resulted in part to state legislation that passed this session that gave localities the authority to remove it if they want to. Um, so that was part of it. Um, speaking with City Councilor Cena McGill, she was really talking about how, you know, Charlottesville City Council, local governments are trying to bring equity into every conversation and as many conversations as possible and and reframing, you know, policy with an equitable lens. And I feel like that's something that is starting to happen if it hasn't already been happening at, at you know, state and national levels. Um, so that's something that Biden and Harris could kind of take inspiration from Charlottesville on. Um, and then, of course, like affordable housing and police reform, which these conversations were coming up in presidential um, discussions as well. So we're in the final countdown to Election Day. What do you think you'll take away from this election cycle, this very unusual election cycle? Me personally? Mm -hmm. uh, I moved to Virginia four years ago and I've covered some kind of election every single year because there's always an election happening in Virginia. And that's really exciting. Um, this year in particular, it was different being able to focus on a federal level race versus a local or state because there is more ground to cover. And so I got to, I kind of got to like push myself 
yourself outside of local boundaries and start thinking about, okay, well, what are the concerns of Pennsylvania County and Danville versus Fauquier versus Charlottesville? Being able to think a little bit more bigger picture because these candidates have to think a little bit bigger picture, but also still have those local ties. So I guess that's something that I took away from reporting. I think for me personally, I mean, we've seen record voter turnout numbers and voter turnout is a huge issue nationwide um, and civic engagement and stuff. And so I'm really excited by that. And I, I kind of hope that in future elections, we we continue having many ways for people to, to vote in all elections, not just presidential elections in their local elections for sheriff and city council and all of those more local roles, too. That is actually something that came up in conversation with Delegate Sally Hudson. She was one of the many people I was asking, like, what can Biden and Harris learn from Charlottesville or Virginia? And she was saying, like, our state has really been a leader on early voting and various ways to vote. It makes it more, I guess, accessible because when you have multiple options and a longer time frame to do it, there's a better chance you're going to actually participate and do it and not get stuck in line or work or traffic and not make it and then feel bummed out. Um, Although it is important to note because, you know, actual election day is around the corner. So anyone who is voting on that day, if you are in line before seven, they have to let you vote. And I can say my father is actually um, working the elections this year. He lives in North Carolina and he's been, we've been having some really meaningful conversations back and forth. He's telling me how, man, Virginia's doing it right because North Carolina, they didn't start until a little bit later. Um, some states have only had like a week of early voting, you know, and Virginia had 40, 45 days, over 40 days. So um, it was really neat to talk to my dad about that. I applied to be a poll worker and was sorely rejected. <laughs> so I, I have to add that to my failure resume, was not selected to be a poll worker in Charlottesville, Albemarle area. Ah, I know. Well, Maybe in the future. Yeah, I'll keep I'll keep applying. Give it another shot. Nice. The Charlottesville Voter Registration and Elections Office tweeted today that over 60% of active registered voters had already cast their ballots as of Friday, October 30th. If you're in that 40% who is yet to vote, the office recommends voting on Election Day at your precinct. But be sure to double-check your precinct's location, as some have recently been changed to better accommodate physical distancing. The polls open on Tuesday, November 3rd at 6 a.m. They will officially close at 7 p.m. However, if you are in line to vote at your precinct by 7 p.m., you will be able to cast a ballot. For everything you need to know, including looking up your precinct location and seeing what's going to be on your ballot, you can go to elections.virginia.gov. Charlotte Renee Woods is a reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. You're listening to Charlottesville Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center. During these challenging times, the Southern Environmental Law Center is remaining strong and resolute in protecting the fundamental right to clean air and clean water and a healthy environment for all. We've been talking about how expansive the 5th District is, and so it's not every year that one of our own neighbors here in Charlottesville is on the ticket. We've been wanting to talk to Dr. Cameron Webb for a while now, not just about what he hopes to do if he's elected to Congress, but also about COVID-19. 
He and his wife, Dr. Leanne Webb, as well as Dr. Tyson Bell, are local experts on the social determinants of health and how COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting communities of color. Nathan Moore got his chance to do just that, sit down with Dr. Cameron Webb and pick his brain. Over to Nathan. Cameron Webb is a lot of things. He's an internist at UVA Hospital. He was a policy wonk in the Obama White House. He's a father and spouse. He's also joining us from Zoom from inside the COVID unit at UVA Hospital. (laughs) So I want to start off talking about the pandemic. It's uh, been pretty well documented how uh, COVID-19 has has impacted communities of color uh, to a greater extent than than white folks. Um, Take me through what you have found in your research and, and work. Yeah, well, you know, first off, thanks for having me. And I'll go ahead and say that, you know, that door pops open. I've already said this to some folks, but I will have to go on mute briefly just because, one, HIPAA. So you have to keep patients' uh, privacy. But but the other thing is that I'm the only physician working in the special pathogens unit uh, when I'm on on these nights. And so, um, you know, definitely we'll, we'll try to jump back as soon as I can. So apologies in advance. But, you know, the, the pandemic has been one of those interesting moments where there are things with disparities in healthcare we've talked about for years on it. But this pandemic has created essentially a rapid cycle of our understanding of disparities and, and seeing them on full display. And so uh, very early on in the pandemic, you know, I work as an internist at the University of Virginia. In the setting of this coronavirus pandemic, you know, our group was responsible for staffing now, the special pathogens unit or the, the COVID unit here at UVA. And, um, and it didn't take long to notice that disproportionately we were seeing black and brown patients in those early days. It connected with a national conversation we were seeing, you know, after we started getting some mortality data back. Remember the Chicago numbers, 70% of the mortality early on was in black patients. Numbers came back from Louisiana. Similarly, you know, I always give credit to some of my colleagues, so Dr. Tyson Bell here at UVA, my wife, Dr. Leanne Webb, uh, Dr. Ebony Hilton, really, uh, you know, between them, just pushing to say to the CDC, hey, we need data, we need to know what's happening. Uh, my wife, uh, Leanne, she actually helped uh, get a lot of our data from the emergency department to figure out what was happening with our patients, who was being tested, so on and so forth. So we had to act pretty quickly to figure out what was happening, but we saw huge differences uh, early on, and I think the root of it is... Uh, is really structural inequality in certain communities. Uh, if you talk about, you know, who our essential workers are, or who our frontline workers are, it is a privilege for individuals to be able to sit at home and work from home. And I think that also breaks along racial and ethnic lines. And so, and then the healthcare access piece, right? The uninsured rates are higher in communities of color. And even for folks who do have health insurance, less likely to have a usual source of care or a private care provider. And so when you put them all together, you see that burden of chronic disease. So, so this is, it's rooted deeply in America's history. I always give folks the example of W.E.B. Du Bois um, had a, a book called The Philadelphia Negro, uh, 1899. And the book actually, chapter 10 was called The Health of Negroes. And it, it goes through in the city of Philadelphia, um, the differences by race in health outcomes really outlines very clearly um, how there are health disparities all the way back in the in the uh, 19th century, you know, um, Harriet Washington wrote a book called Medical Apartheid, and it describes the so-called slave health deficit. So the folks who were brought here, you know, enslaved Africans who were brought to the United States, that health deficit began to accrue intergenerationally for the past 401 years. And so, again, not only is that manifesting in actual health outcomes, it's manifesting in attitudes toward healthcare. 
right? And the experimentation on black bodies historically, that adds to this dynamic in this conversation. Remember the Tuskegee syphilis study? That ended in 1972. So there are people who are, you know, that's, that's not ancient history, folks. And even here, uh, you know, at the university where I'm sitting now, I'm in a brand new tower, but just right up the street, if I were to look out this window, I would see the West Complex, and that was a segregated ward. The basement was where black patients were, and that was until the early 1960s. And so there are people in this community who remember that segregated ward, who were born into that segregated ward. And so that history is a living history uh, of kind of uh, systemic racism in our healthcare system. You know, in all of these different social factors, you have a, you have a different story. In housing, we can talk about redlining. In food insecurity, we can talk about, you know, the structures there um, and the lack of food justice, the retail food environment and the impact that has. Literally in every one of these, you've got a, a story rooted in the inequality. It's, uh, it's an awful lot, uh, Dr. Webb. You know, we're talking about <laughs> inequality that's been connected to uh, American economic life and, and capitalism for, I mean, literally centuries. How do we start to untangle this? Well, the, and this is not a political statement, but the easiest way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time, right? And I think that we have to do all of these things at once. Um, as we've said for the last couple of decades, health is in all policies. Education policy impacts health. The farm bill, 80% of it going to supplemental nutrition assistance program or SNAP benefits, that's health policy right there. Minimum wage laws, that's health policy. Criminal justice reform, that's health policy. So we, we always have to think about what's the impact on health. And so I think if we start to systematize that sum, it's going to help us understand. Um, and so that's a starting point. And I think the next thing is we have to commit ourselves to uh, an equitable society. And I think that right now we, you know, we press toward that mark, you know, here in the Charlottesville and Albemarle area, that's been a big conversation in our schools is how do we achieve equity for the students? No, nobody's suggesting that all outcomes should be equal, should be identical. What we're suggesting is that everyone should have opportunities for success. And that's the way that we have to design our society. And I think that that to me is just fundamentally the American dream is that idea that everybody has opportunities for success. And when we do that, uh, we'll do pretty well. So I think that's the way that we approach it. We just say, hey, what's fair and what's equitable? equitable in so many different spaces. And I think that gives us a real shot at, uh, at tackling these challenges. You know, it's, it's good you're running for Congress because all these things seem like they need a law. <laughs> what, uh, <laughs> what priorities do you have? What would you bring to Washington when it comes to health? In this district, people aren't talking overwhelmingly about access in the form of insurance. They're talking about the cost of prescription drugs, the cost of insurance, had the highest insurance premiums in the in the United States uh, in 2018, in the ACA exchanges, which is an incredible reality. Um, so premiums, uh, prescription medications, long-term care, surprise medical bills. And uh, what I find is there's always kind of that, that shared conversation point. So, you know, on healthcare in the Trump White House, it was always, we think everybody should have access to the care that they need. And the free market has always been the best way for that to be accomplished. And so I would say, okay, okay, free market. Let's have that conversation about free market and healthcare. Let's talk about the challenges of the free market in the healthcare space. Let's talk about the asymmetry of information, the fact that people aren't your typical consumer in the healthcare space. Let's talk about the fact that there's a third party who's actually making that transaction on your behalf. Let's talk about the fact that you know there's no transparency in the pricing. So is this a normal market? And then folks will say, well, you know, their first thought is it's not a normal market because of all the regulations. No, no, no. It's not a normal market because it's not a normal market. And then regulation on top of that changes it even more so. So it's like, so let, let's say that just using a market-centric mentality alone is not going to ensure that everybody has access to the care. So then we can agree, well, we're going to have to do something. And you support Medicare, right? 
And they're like, well, yeah, our seniors, that's the third rail of politics. Nobody's going to say no. It's like, well, why? And they're like, well, because they need to have, you know, they earned it. They deserve it. Okay. Okay. So we, we agree there's a role for government. It's to set some floor. There, there's some floor. And then let's talk about productivity. Let's say, how can government be a part of that conversation about having a healthy American workforce so we can thrive in a global, in a global environment where they all have healthcare, <laughs> you know? And then suddenly you're, you're just like, okay, we've zoomed out of this first conversation and we're talking about American competitiveness in a global marketplace, you know? And, and that's where I like to bring people. I can go to town on healthcare and talk about health policy. But what I talk about quite often is actually our economy. And I talk about this pandemic and the impact that it's having. You know, if you can frame this appropriately, what you can recognize is, you know, COVID is a moment. COVID is a crisis. Uh, it was a, it's an opportunity for real leadership, but it's highlighting so many issues. And so I've been talking most, if you look the last uh, several months uh, since this pandemic started, I've been talking most about things like rural broadband and making sure that we're getting, uh, you know, broadband across this district. You've got Cumberland County with 20% broadband access. You got, you know, over in Brunswick County, it's about 30%. And down in Pennsylvania, the largest geographic county in the Commonwealth of Virginia, it's only uh, somewhere between 50 and 60% of folks with broadband access. And by that, I mean, you know, 25 megabits per second download speeds. And that's just creating a standard. That's not necess- That's not by any means, you know, the ideal. That's just saying a standard for adequate download speeds for a modern economy. And so we have a lot of work to do on rural broadband. That's going to have impacts on education and addressing the digital divide that our students are facing, um, you know, right now in, in unprecedented ways. It's going to address telemedicine and telehealth, and that's going to be really important in rural spaces. It's going to address things, you know, like job creation, because, Employers aren't going to come to a place without broadband. And similarly, it's hard to, to be an entrepreneur without broadband. 27% of our farmers here in the 5th Congressional District don't have broadband. It's hard for them to engage in the broader economy if they don't have access. You know, So we talk about education a lot, talk about job creation a lot, talk about climate crisis a lot. My lens is my role in society, which is as a physician, it's as a, you know, somebody who worked on policy both in the Obama and Trump White Houses. So I get to bring that with me and say, hey, what's the strategic design that serves us best? You know, you're not going to win all those conversations. Sometimes people just retreat to their partisan perspective. But, you know, if you do start with saying, what are our shared values and acknowledging to people, hey, we do have shared values. We don't walk around our communities wearing blue t-shirts and red t-shirts. We walk around our communities just as individuals. We talk to our neighbors. It's only these couple weeks before November that we don't like each other in our communities, (laughs) right? You get mad about the sign that's in the yard next to you. The, the truth is we've been able to get along in our workplaces, in our communities. And yes, there still is some tension. Don't get me wrong, in, in a lot of different ways. But I think that our ability to have these conversations, it's possible. I've seen it happen. I've been a part of it. Uh, and, I, and I'm hopeful that we'll continue to be a part of it. Um, and I think you have to have a hopeful perspective, not a naive one, but a hopeful one. And you have to say, we can believe that we can move toward that direction. My posture is always to say, let's keep talking, uh, as opposed to I want nothing to do with you kind of want to ask some things about how it's going to go as a lawmaker. You're going to be a first-term lawmaker. Um, you know, the way it works in Washington, you don't tend to have as much influence until you've been around for a while and you start getting on committee chairs and all that. But how do you, uh, how do you hope to make an impact in the first term? How do you want to have an influence? Well, I think I have a unique voice uh, in this, and that's not to overstate my, my hand here. But I think that there's a reason why the entire Democratic leadership is invested in this race. Um, what I've heard to a person 
we want your expertise on healthcare. Um, we want your expertise on COVID. That's where we really are looking for you to lead. And so I think in some ways, you know, I'd be asked to kind of come in and, and lead on some key issues in the 117th Congress. Um, I wouldn't be leading in the form of being a committee chair, but I think my voice would be really valued. So I think that's important. I think the impact that I'd be able to have, um, you know, in some ways is tied to my expertise. In other ways, it's tied to, you know, my dogged pursuit of representing my district. I don't feel beholden to, to anything from a partisan perspective. I think that it's more about, you know, a job well done is serving this district really well. I want to uh, turn toward some sort of kind of policy-oriented questions. And and one, for some years now, there have been progressive calls for a single-payer kind of system, sort of a Canada-style system, yeah. which would address the things you talked about uh, earlier, yeah. about you know high prescriptions, um, premiums, surprise medical bills, all that kind of stuff would be addressed. Single-payer is not something you've been a supporter of. Why not? I like to look at the district as a whole. You go across 740,000 people, you go across 21 counties and two cities, you hear a lot of different versions of this conversation. Um, I've heard a tremendous amount of excitement about single payer and I've heard a tremendous amount of fear about single payer from Democrats. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. And I center around this idea uh, that we should be working to urgently achieve universal health coverage, which means that everybody in the country, 100% of people have coverage. Um, And the way that you do that is you say that uh, you define it and say that everybody has access to the care that they need, uh, sufficient quality to be effective, and that accessing that care does not result in financial harm. And you say, okay, cool. And then you ask the question, well, how have other nations accomplished that? Some nations have accomplished it through a single payer national health insurance program. Other nations, Germany, Switzerland, the Netherlands have achieved great health outcomes with a mix of public and private. And then I look at our system and I say that if I, if I just took it from the perspective of what are we presently, we are both on the payment and delivery side, a mix of public and private. When I hear calls for a single payer system, what I don't hear or haven't heard yet is calls for a purely public delivery system. And so we're already planning to be both public and private on the delivery side. And so then the question is, well, what, what's going to be the most effective ultimately? Now, there are going to be absolutely, we will continue to have challenges. I think there's going to, it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of thoughtfulness um, to, to design a mixed system like what Germany has put together that's been very effective for the German people that's a combination of public and private. Um, what I say is that when I look at Medicare, I, I cannot help but notice how many times Medicare has been improved based on what they're seeing in the private insurance space. You know, if you look at payment uh, systems, that fee-for-service model that has been has defined Medicare for so long, private insurance is the innovator of value-based payment. And now Medicare is like, that looks good. I want to do some of that. You look at Medicare Part D, and you look at how they're working together with private insurance to execute that very program, to deliver benefits. And across the board, people say, that's a pretty good program. You look at our Medicaid program here in Virginia. You look at the 469,000 people who just gained coverage, 95% of it is managed care, leveraging private insurance. So wait, private insurance is not always the bad guy. It's about putting rules around it that make it actually work for people so you preserve that innovation and choice. That's what I believe in terms of, of being thoughtful in the direction of our healthcare system. That's what I believe the right next step is. You know, my hope is that, you know, if we, if we play this out correctly, if we take the right step, at every turn, every time we're talking about well, what do we do with healthcare? In 2010, the right step was the Affordable Care Act. And, um, and 20 million people gained insurance. We still have 30 million people who didn't. Uh, Republicans tried over 70 times to overturn that law, and now it's going before the Supreme Court on November 10th, just a couple of days, right? And so it's just like, even though that was the right step, even though that was conservative legislation, 
you know, people have been trying to tear that down, not even thinking about the 20 million people whose lives lay in the balance. And so I'm very, very um, cautious about about my patients and about their needs. And um, and I understand why people, why there's an allure for a single payer system. It's just for me, I don't think that's the correct next step based on where we are as a healthcare system at present. I think that we have to achieve better value in our care or else we're not going to rein in the costs in such a single payer system. And that's going to result in a downward traction on access. That's a hard thing to do, right? But I do think that over time, this conversation is going to continue to evolve because if we do this the right way, if you create a public option that makes sure that those additional 30 million people can get insured, and the other part that I talk about, but I haven't heard many legislators nationally talk about it, but it's something that I, I believe wholeheartedly is the reason why people say that my health care plan is pro-business is because I think we should break the bond between employment and health insurance, right? That's not something that anybody's talking about, but it is something that, that has that, you know, inherent in it is that idea that that was the original sin of the American healthcare system is that 51% of people have coverage is tied to their employer. And this pandemic has shown us that maybe that's not the best way for your healthcare to be determined. And for small businesses that are struggling through this pandemic, they say, please take that burden of health insurance off of me. And in fact, they say, listen, the, the unpredictable costs of health insurance uh, for, for private businesses, that's been a tremendous expense. And if instead they can offer a defined contribution as a benefit, they can still offer a benefit to their employees, but it's more predictable, right? When you put those things together, then what you're allowing the American people to do is vote with their feet. Say, do I want that public plan or do I want to go with the private plan. And then when you do that, I think that over time, we're having a fundamentally different conversation. We have people in charge of their care. Remember I said it wasn't a normal market? Well, we're making it more like a normal market. You're putting people in charge of where and how they get their care. Um, and you're also giving us time to, to grow this thoughtfully, uh, grow a public plan, um, because nowhere has, has tried to, to fully administer a public plan the size of what we're proposing, what, what um, you know, was being proposed in a single payer system. Um, I think that based on the, so the simplest answer is based on all of my experience, all of my expertise on health policy, I'm just not convinced that a single payer system is the right step in 2020 or heading into 2021 for the American healthcare system. But I understand wholeheartedly why people are passionate about what it can promise to them. If it can promise them that everybody has care and nobody's going broke, hey, we're on the same page. And I think we can achieve that through what I'm describing. And if that's what you want, I got you. But if it's simply that, no, 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 we want government to do all of it, well, then I'll say, well, you know, here are the pros, here are the cons, right? And, and so, and you can say there are pros and cons of my idea. That's why there's a room for a healthy discourse. I think on the sustainability front, um, you know, what I propose, I've, I've spent a tremendous amount of time thinking this through, um, kind of, uh, you know, wargaming it, saying, how can we execute something like this um, in our government in our present time? And I think we can. And I think it's something that's, um, that's uh, not only achievable, but can serve that purpose of accomplishing universal health coverage, but at the same time, ensuring that nobody is going broke because of the cost of health care. Uh, Dr. Webb, this summer there, uh, uh, there was a, a, a huge spate of protests all across the country uh, after the murder of George Floyd uh, in support of black lives. What, what's your stand on, on the demands of, of the Black Lives Matter movement? Uh, which demands are you talking about? On things like uh, police funding and, and community policing and, and redirecting certain funds. What's your stand? I don't want to defund the cops. I'm not opposed to law and order. I'm a physician. I care deeply about public safety and well-being. Um, you know, so my father worked in law enforcement for 20 years, as I mentioned at the top of this. My dad worked for the Drug Enforcement Administration. In fact, my dad was the chair of the Federal Law Enforcement Training Accreditation Board. So he was in leadership in law enforcement for years. So, so um, no, I'm not anti-law enforcement in any way. 
I'm very pro-justice, though. I'm very pro-public safety. I think that we need to make sure that our criminal justice system um, is is fair and equitable. We need to make sure that the way that we achieve public safety is also fair and equitable. From my experience working in the Obama White House, we created this 21st century policing task force and just saying, hey, we need to modernize the way that we do law enforcement in order to create a fair and equitable uh, criminal justice system. Um, Some of that includes community-oriented policing. And I'll use the example of Danville uh, with Chief Scott Booth and how since 2018, they've moved toward a community-oriented policing model and crime has continued to decline. Community relationships with law enforcement have improved. It's incredible to see. Most of the community events that I go to in Danville have a law enforcement presence and, and they are getting along really well. And it's because of the investment in community-oriented policing that you can't do that without uh, increasing officer salaries so that they're getting paid enough to live in the communities that they're policing. You can't do that without having enough officers so that they can spend the time and build the relationships with the communities that they're um, charged to protect and serve. Um, you can't do that without making sure that they have the training necessary. I know I'm sounding like my dad focusing on law enforcement training, but without having the training necessary uh, to, to make those right decisions in those tough moments, it's a tough job, right? We have to have a federal government that recognizes the big picture. I put policing reform in the broader context of criminal justice reform, and I remind people, um, criminal justice reform means interventions at six points. Policing is the first one. It's a critical one. But policing and also prosecution and also adjudication and also sentencing and also corrections and also reentry. Um, I'll say that there are ways to thoughtfully uh, you know, support law enforcement at the same time, make sure that we're making progress on racial justice in our criminal justice system. I think we need to do both things at the same time. Uh, Dr. Webb, I want to let you have uh, the last word. Uh, get your flu shot. Um, that's really important. You know, I know there's a lot of COVID fatigue, COVID exhaustion, but recognize that um, this is the moment where everything we've learned along the way about this virus, it's being tested. Because this is the moment when viruses like a coronavirus do their best work when the weather changes. Uh, and so uh, as we navigate this space, are we ready to step into everything we've learned along the way? Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner-McGee. Our theme music is Kyoja Beat by Marin Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Soundboard.